turn in our Bibles to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We're finally here at the end of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's a relatively short chapter, and it's not really as filled with doctrine uh, or uh, things that Paul has to address with regard to the errors that the Corinthian church had been so prominently uh, experiencing. But chapter 16 is the end of the letter, and as he closes in other letters, he does so here with several greetings and several last things that he wants to mention. And those things are what we're going to be looking at tonight. Those things that are of importance to Paul, and really because they were important to Paul, they should be important to all of us because it's related to the kinds of issues that we need to address in our own fellowships from time to time. So chapter 16 is where again we are. And the first part of that chapter talks about a collection. Now, Paul had instructed the churches in Achaia and in Macedonia to uh, take an offering for the church in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was in the midst of a very, very severe drought and it was affecting the church in Jerusalem, but also the church in Jerusalem was persecuted much more in those days than they were at the first because as they had grown and they grew substantially over those first few years, uh, they became enemies of the Jewish state. <clears throat> Both the civilian and the religious leaders uh, despised the Jewish Christians and they wanted to eliminate the sect of Christianity that had been growing so rapidly in Jerusalem. And of course, there was a degree of persecution that caused the Jewish church to be dispersed throughout all of uh, the region. And if that hadn't happened, then we might have not been so fortunate as we have been as the church grew Remember, Jesus had instructed the church originally. The apostles heard him speak to them with regard to what they were supposed to do, and they were to go out into all the world. But initially, they did not do so. They stuck around Jerusalem, and uh, they began to do some things that probably weren't in the center of God's will, if you will. Uh, one of those things that they did was they sold all of their belongings for the most part and they shared among themselves uh, from the distribution that came forth from that. But of course, that didn't last long. Uh, they were very, very uh, apt to not be able to keep their employment um, because of their faith. Uh, they couldn't uh, fellowship with uh, their neighbors as they had once because their neighbors rejected them because they were no longer uh, living a Jewish life. And for the most part, as a Jew, they were persecuted because they were not doing what all the Jews expected them to be doing with regard to the Jewish customs. And as a result of that, they were facing some very, very difficult times. So Paul, as he's gone through all of these Gentile communities that he has visited on a second missionary journey, had requested that they would collect some money so that he could bring that uh, offering to Jerusalem as a gift from the Gentile church. 
it would serve two purposes. It would unite the Jews and the Gentile Christians. Um, and remember, there was definitely a, a rift that had been right from the very beginning, uh, a problem for the, the Gentiles who were becoming believers and they couldn't really get along very well easily with the Jewish believers because the Jewish believers, for the most part, were reluctant to accept the Gentiles as brothers in the faith. They wanted, many of them did, they wanted the Gentiles to uh, observe Jewish customs as they had been doing. Uh, and, and of course, Paul had instructed the Gentiles that they were not needing to do any of those things that the Jews were requiring of them. And even James finally had written a letter, you'll recall, in, in a book of Acts, given there in chapter 16, I believe, that uh, they were to not have any of the Jewish customs uh, being mandated by the Jews for the Gentiles to observe. But all of that having been said, now Paul is addressing this need to collect the money that will be brought to uh, Jerusalem by either him or people that will be assigned f for that particular task. And that's what the first part of chapter 16 is all about. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting for that I go also, they will go with me. So again, here Paul is saying, make the collection um, on a regular basis whenever you get together on the first day of the week. And this is a significant statement that he's giving here because the Gentile church did not meet on the Sabbath day, Saturday, the seventh day of the week. They met on the first day of the week. And it's very obvious from this context that is given here that this Gentile church in Corinth, and according to uh, church historians, every Gentile church observed the worship of the Lord on the first day of the week. That's the day that Christ rose from the dead, on the first day of the week. And they distinguished themselves from the Jewish faith because the Jews did meet on Saturday. So there's no really need for anybody to be concerned about whether or not we should be calling Sunday the Sabbath, and we should not be because it is not the Sabbath, and we shouldn't be forcing anyone to worship on any particular day. We just happen to observe the worship of the Lord on a weekly basis as we come together on Sunday morning to worship Him, but we're to worship Him every day of the week. Paul wrote in one of the other letters not to uh, observe certain days as being more holy than other days and we're to worship the Lord every day and no day is different. Whether it's a new moon or a Sabbath or any other special occasion, those are insignificant. They're just basically pictures of or types of that which was to come, which is Christ. But they met on the first day of the week and they were to take a collection as he had instructed them and the churches of Galatia as well and all of the other various Gentile churches that 
he had uh, instructed to do this, and he was going to bring that uh, offering to Jerusalem, either himself or he would send somebody uh, at their leisure, at whatever they chose, uh, he would be willing to um, allow that to take place. He says, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Or, if it is fitting that I go, uh, then I will go with them, or they will go with me. So giving is a very important aspect of what we are all about in the Christian faith. We do give on a regular basis. And there are many churches who make tithing to be a mandatory thing. We have not done so. In fact, there is nothing in the New Testament that shows us any relevance to the giving of 10% of your earnings to the church. Paul tells us that we are to give, and we are to give Cheerfully, He tells us that in 2 Corinthians, and I'd like to go there just quickly to remind us of the need for the church to give, but not that we are required to give specific amounts. It says in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There is the standard by which the New Testament church should function. Giving is based upon your willingness to give. And if you sow bountifully, you will benefit bountifully from that which you give. If you sow sparingly, then you'll have less blessing from that. In the Old Testament, we find that God tells his people, the Jews, that they are to not forsake the giving of the tithe into the storehouse. And we use that as an example, not as a requirement, but as an example of God's willingness to bless when we do give unto the Lord. Because he says in that passage, I believe it's in Malachi, that he will pour out a blessing that we cannot contain. He'll open the windows of heaven if we are willing to give and give in a way that will please the Lord. And in the New Testament, the way we please the Lord is to give liberally, to give bountifully, cheerfully, and not out of grudgingly having to give. And that's what he says in that verse 7, following what we just read in chapter 9 of Second Corinthians. He says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful can be translated hilarious. One who just loves cheerfully to give to the Lord. Don't give grudgingly, but as you purpose in your heart. Should I give 10%? If God puts that on your heart to give 10%, then I suggest to you that that's what you should do. Tithing is not mandated. I think it's good to give a tithe. I think it's something that anyone who chooses to observe that basic Simple instruction found throughout the Old Testament, but not in the New, is still blessing in it. 
And so I encourage tithing, but I encourage offering with a cheerful heart more. And if you cannot give cheerfully, then it, it won't amount to anything for you. You will benefit nothing from that. You determine in your own heart what you can afford to do. Some people can afford more than 10%. And by the way, the tithe in the Old Testament was more than just 10%. There were other things that they were required by the law to give besides that 10%. And it amounted to more like a 30% taxation, if you will, of the people that they were obligated to give. Now, I'm not suggesting that any one of us should be willing to give more than we should, but I'm suggesting that we should give more than enough. Uh, not that it hurts, but remember, even the Philippians were rewarded by Paul's statement to them that they gave beyond their means. And they did it willingly because they knew the great need that others had. And in the case of this giving that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, and he addresses that in other places as well, it is very important for the churches to realize that Paul is emphasizing the need to be giving uh, freely uh, for the needs of others. And that's one of the things that we want to be very careful in, in paying attention to, is that you know when we give to the church, there is money that is and should be set aside for the purpose of helping others who are in need. And we do that, and we want to continue to do that. So the more that comes in, the more we are able to help others in need. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we try to help those who are in the body of Christ first, and then we can consider others outside of the faith. But we do want to make sure that we are attentive to the needs of those in our body specifically and uh, other churches perhaps that are in need that we might, because of the benefit that comes our way through generous giving, we can share that wealth with other people and be a blessing to them. And that's what makes it to become a cheerful experience for us when we realize that what we give is being distributed to those who are in great need. That's what Paul is here addressing. The church in Jerusalem was indeed in great need, and it is very evident through the reading of the New Testament scriptures that address this particular need that the Gentile churches responded very, very favorably to this request. Now, he goes on from that to talk about his own personal plans. And it's interesting that he says what he tells us here because it tells me that Paul didn't always know exactly what the will of God was in every situation. He says in verse 5, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. He knew that pretty much for certain. That was his plan. It didn't work out exactly as he intended. He intended to go much sooner than he was able to go, and in the way that things worked out, it didn't happen exactly as he expected. But he tells this Corinthian church that that's his plan. I will pass through Macedonia, which is uh, the northern part of 
uh, Greece and then down through into Achaia, which is where they are in Corinth. And he says in verse 6, And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. So Paul is addressing this intent that he has of visiting with them and perhaps staying over the winter months with them. It would be a safe place for him to stay. Uh, you don't really, in those days, travel in the wintertime overseas because it is very, very difficult to do so. Uh, so he was thinking that they they would be seeing him sometime in the very near future and that he'd probably spend some extra time there before he went on from there, wherever he was going to go. He continues on to say, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Now I'm glad that Paul adds that if the Lord permits at the end of chapter 16 verse 7 because what we see here is Paul not with any great certainty about the plans that he's making but it's really good for us to see that Paul is indeed making plans but he cushions his intent with the need to make sure that whatever he does it is in the will of God and that's exactly how we should make our plans when we look forward in the days that are still yet future for us, we can make plans, but never make those plans without giving consideration to the possibility, the probability that God may have other plans in store for you. That is always true. And it has happened for most of us as we have thought about things that are yet to come and it didn't really quite work out the way we expected that they might work out. Even Jeremiah in the Old Testament um, heard from the Lord that he was to buy a plot of land. And God told him that he would confirm that this was his will when one of his relatives would come and tell him that that is what has been the Lord's request for him. And it was, was when that cousin came and spoke about the purchase of that land that Jeremiah then knew that it was God's will. And so even in the Old Testament, you know, we see instances like that which Jeremiah conveyed to us that we may be hearing from the Lord and hopefully if that's the case, it will be confirmed so that we can know for sure that it was indeed the Lord's will. That's what Paul is seeking here, the Lord's will. And it's my plan, he says, for me to go to see you, but it's only if it is in God's will that he will permit it, then I will do so. But, he says in verse 8, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. In some of your translations, it may say Passover. I think the Passover is, uh, of course, it's a reference to a Hebrew uh, uh, feast, and, and so many of the English translators perhaps thought it was more appropriate to reference Pentecost, which was about 50 days after Passover. Uh, but in either case, whether he mentioned Pentecost or Passover, we know it was in the springtime that he wanted to stay in Ephesus until that time. In verse 9 he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now Paul is saying that 
in Ephesus, the reason he's staying is that there are doors of opportunity that have been opening up for him for ministry. And he wants to make sure that he takes care of every one of those opportunities before he moves on. But he also says there are many adversaries. And it is quite true that though Paul was very faithful to serving the Lord and doing the will of God, that he indeed did suffer greatly at the hands of much opposition. Both in Ephesus and everywhere else, pretty much where he went, there were difficulties, there were stonings, there was all kinds of uh, opposition to his teaching this wonderful news that he was presenting to the Gentile world. And he knows that in Ephesus, though there are many adversaries who are against him, and ultimately they will find a way to get him out of Ephesus, but it's not for a season yet. Yet there is going to be great ministry opportunity that he will take advantage of in spite of all that adversity. And that's something that we need to understand as well. If we are to do the will of God, we might end up finding ourselves in a very, very troublesome situation from time to time because there is persecution, there is resistance to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we could find ourselves threatened, we could find ourselves hindered in the work that we seek to do in our communities. But here Paul is saying, I have been facing these difficulties, and I want you to know, Corinthian church, that I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing here in spite of all the adversity, because God has called me to do that. And it's very interesting that he spent a great deal of time in Ephesus, and it is from Ephesus that many saints went forward from that town of Ephesus into all of Asia Minor, and all of the churches in Asia were established through the ministry of Paul while he was in Ephesus, it seems. The church at Philadelphia, the church at Sardis, the church at Thyatira, the church at Philadelphia, all of those cities in Asia surrounding this territory where Ephesus was were presented the gospel because of Paul's work there in Ephesus. He sent out many servants from there to minister in those regions. And there was great fruit from that. Paul is saying, I'm going to stay until that work is done. And then in verse 10, he begins a series of giving of thanks to individuals who have been great help to him, both in Corinth and, and elsewhere. And uh, he starts off in verse 10 with one of his very special brothers in the Lord. Uh, in fact, he counts this man as his son in Christ. Paul is Timothy's father in Christ, in the sense that he brought Timothy to the Lord and his grandmother and mother to the Lord as well. And Timothy is a very special individual. Uh, Timothy is one who has stuck by Paul until the very end of Paul's life. Uh, the first and second letters to Timothy uh, give us that great sense of appreciation that Paul had for this young man. And it says here in verse 10, If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as also I do. So he's instructing the Corinthian church that they are to take good care of this young man and not to give him a hard time, even though he's young. And that's partly the culture that he was a part of because of his youthfulness. There were many who looked at Timothy with 
kind of disdain because, after all, he was just a young man and he didn't have the maturity that the elders would have, and so he was looked down upon by many. And unfortunately, that was the case. Timothy is told by Paul not to uh, let those who think so about him to uh, cause him to stumble or fall. And uh, he says in one of the letters to Timothy that uh, even though Timothy had an issue with perhaps his stomach uh, being a problem that might have been an early sign of ulcers or it could have been some other issue, but it might have been caused by stress in the ministry. And Paul is addressing the Corinthian church here that they should receive Timothy. He may, might be the one who actually delivered this letter to the Corinthian church. And he says, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. Therefore, in verse 11, he says, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brothers. So, Timothy is very important to Paul, and he's hoping for that reuniting with his friend uh, eventually after this letter has been delivered. He says in verse 12, Now concerning, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but it was quite he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So Paul had made a request to Apollos to go perhaps with Timothy to Corinth, but Apollos had other things that he wanted to accomplish that he was involved in, so he said, no, not at this time, perhaps a little later on. I find that significant because Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, had the authority, I believe, to insist that Apollos go for the sake of presenting the gospel in a situation at Corinth that needed his attention. But he doesn't enforce anything upon Apollos. And remember also that in the very first portion of this letter to the Corinthian church, there were some who were saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul. There was a clique going on that said, Apollos is a man, Paul is, Paul is not so special as he is, or vice versa. Paul is a great teacher, but Apollos, well, he's, he's a great orator, but he doesn't know all of the, the very many things that, that, that Paul the Apostle knows. So there was a division uh, among the people, but not between Paul and Apollos. Paul could have been somewhat jealous, perhaps, of the status that Apollos had, but that does not show up in this letter at all. In fact, it is here very evident that Paul considered Apollos to be of great value to the Corinthian church, and he wanted to send Apollos with Timothy to Corinth, but Apollos had other plans, and Paul respected that decision that Apollos had made. But he's a fellow minister, as Timothy is, of the gospel of Jesus Christ with Paul. He's not a competitor. He is a fellow minister of the gospel. That's important. And he makes these final exhortations uh, to the church in verse 13. And these are very emphatic statements. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Those are emphatic. You must be watchful. You must stand fast. You must be brave. You must 
be strong. He makes that statement in the Greek language. It's very, very strongly put. These are needed to be done. Be strong. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. And then he adds in verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. Always tempered with love. Remember, Paul emphasized the greatness of love over everything. And that's part of the heart of his letter that he closes this letter with this uh, one verse in verse 14 to remind us of how important love is with regard to Christian fellowship. Let all that you do be done with love. He goes on in verse 15 to say, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such as and do every and to everyone who works and labors with us. So Paul is saying that the household of Stephanus, which is uh, the very first fruits of Achaia, uh, Achaia is where they are located, and it is uh, evident that Paul is saying that this household of Stephanus were part of that first fruits within the city of Corinth. Now, in chapter 16 of the book of Romans, which is also the closing chapter of that great letter, Paul also mentions the fact that there is a first fruits in in Achaia. He says in verse 5 of chapter 16 of uh, the book of Romans, likewise, greet the church that is in their house, speaking of Apollos, uh, rather speaking of Priscilla and Aquila, and he goes on to say, greet my beloved Epeanetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Now this individual is of the household of Stephanus, and it is pretty obvious when you compare the two that this one individual, Epeanetus, is the very first convert in Corinth. He's of the household of Stephanus. And the many others who were part of that household are also saints as well. And they're serving diligently in that day that Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. He says, submit to them because they are devoted to the ministry. That word devoted is also a very strong word. It uh, could be translated addicted to. That's the idea. They can't stop doing the ministry that God has called them to do. I love that kind of attitude when you have committed your heart to serving the Lord with all your whole body, soul, and spirit. You will be blessed. And that's what they have done. And it's the ministry to the saints and for the saints that they are committing themselves to such a task. He says, those are the kinds of people that you should submit yourselves to and let them labor with other saints who also are committed so that the work can be carried on faithfully by faithful men. He says in verse 14, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. These three, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, are likely the ones who came to Paul in Ephesus to convey the problems that were being experienced in that city, 
they probably brought the letter that the Corinthian church had written to Paul for Paul to respond to, which he did in this first letter to the Corinthian church. And so he's reminding the Corinthian church that these men have been very helpful to him. They've refreshed his spirit, and also they've been a blessing to the Corinthian church as well. And he says, again, acknowledge such men. So submit in verse 16, to those who are committed to the ministry, acknowledge those who are also committed to the ministry as being men of God. Finally, his last greetings uh, and salutation. Uh, it's a solemn farewell, if you will. He says in verse 19, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, which with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Asia, we mentioned those churches earlier, Philadelphia and uh, Thyatira and Sardis and uh, all of the others that we talked about in Asia, they have been uh, instrumental in the growth of the church during Paul's days of ministry. Now, keep in mind that those same churches in Asia were the seven churches in particular that the Lord addressed in the book of Revelation, near the end of the first century. And they were all of them, with the exception of one, very much dealing with things that needed to be addressed by the Lord. He commended most of them, but he condemned them for much of what they were allowing in the church. So it turns out that though the church started well, there were problems that entered into the church, and that's common, even in our day, and it shouldn't be, but it is. We need to be careful to address issues that the Lord would find to be unfavorable. And we would love if the Lord would write us a letter that was like the letter to the, Philippian, uh, to the Philadelphia church where he commended them for everything that they were doing because they did not do, apparently, anything wrong, at least as far as that letter was concerned. But these churches that Paul is mentioning are from Asia. And then he mentions again Aquila and Priscilla. I brought their names up as I read chapter 16 of the book of Romans where they had a house in Rome. And Paul is saying now they have a house in Ephesus. Well, it's interesting. These two, the couple, Aquila and Priscilla, had been in Rome and they had been involved in the Roman church, perhaps from its very beginning. But there was a time when the emperor had forced all of the Jews out of Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla left Rome, and they went to Corinth. And it's there in Corinth that Paul met them. And they were, all of them, the three of them, by profession, tent makers. So they worked together. They ministered together in Corinth. And apparently, they moved on from Corinth to Ephesus. Paul had stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. And now he's in Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla are there, and they have a house in Ephesus. And they're also having people who are meeting in their house for church. It says, greet or rather, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So he's just telling the Corinthian church, who would be familiar with Aquila and Priscilla, 
they want to make sure that you receive this greeting directly from them in this letter that Paul is writing to them. And in verse again 20, he says, All the brethren greet you and greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we probably don't typically, in our culture at least, uh, greet with holy kisses or kisses of any kind, hopefully. We have a good a deal of hugging going on. We are okay with shaking hands and, you know, butting fists or whatever we do to greet one another these days. Uh, but it's, it's important that we understand that our greetings should be greetings that are conditioned on love for one another and respect. He goes on in verse 21, he says this, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. In other words, Paul is writing this one line to indicate to the Corinthian church that he is giving them an indication that he has put his hand to this letter. It's interesting he puts, puts that here because in the letter to the Galatians, he says something very similar, although he says, see what large letters I write to you. The implication there is that Paul had a bit of a problem with his eyes. And that is a belief, and I believe it is to be accepted, that Paul had some issues, physical issues, and among those physical issues was he had a very poor eyesight, perhaps because of the stonings that he had to endure or other punishments that he had to endure over the years. It took a toll on Paul's physical body. And so he wrote to the Galatian church in large letters, probably because he was unable to see very clearly. And he wanted the Corinthian church to note that this salutation with his own hand, indicating that they would recognize his handwriting. They would recognize the fact that perhaps the letters are much larger in that one line, indicating that this is truly Paul's own hand that is being recorded here. Verse 22 ends the letter, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. It's not a very pleasant thought, but what he's saying is, if you're not in Christ, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you aren't going to be His in eternity. Let Him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. That's His request of Jesus. Come, Lord. In spite of the fact that there may be some who reject Christ, our desire is that He come for His church. But until He does come for His church, let us pray for those who are outside the faith until they turn to Christ because it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Him. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Paul had said, I want to come to visit with you for a while. It didn't quite, as I said earlier, work out the way he had intended. He did get there. He did make the collection. He did bring that collection from all of the Gentile churches to Jerusalem. But from there, it went downhill. Instead of going on a, another missionary journey, Paul was put in prison for a very long period of time. But it was in that prison cell in Caesarea that he wrote some of his later letters, which we do have most of. And it is very evident that he also did go 
ultimately to Rome, but it wasn't exactly as, as he had intended. He went by ship and almost didn't make it. Remember in the storm uh, on his way, they were diverted and they were stuck on an island for a very long period of time until they finally did make it to Rome, but he was there as a prisoner, not as an apostle to the Gentiles, although that's what he was, but he went there and was put under house arrest because of that Jerusalem situation that had taken place so many months before. So it wasn't exactly as Paul had intended, but he did get to Rome as he believed that the Lord had spoken to him that he would indeed get there. Well, Paul apparently was released. At the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul still in the house, uh, under house arrest. But later on, we see that apparently Paul was freed by Nero and allowed to continue his ministry for a period of time. And apparently, although it's not recorded anywhere, Paul went to as far as we know, all the way to Spain. And he was finally imprisoned again. And then when he was brought back to Rome in a Roman cell, not in a house, he wrote his final letters to Timothy, not expecting to be released this time. And he was not. He was beheaded in Rome, probably in the area of 64 or 65 AD. So that's the way that we end this letter with Paul's final farewell message, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's how I would choose to close this time together with you, with the same simple statement, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.